Connor's life was turned around when he became a Christian. He left an adulterous relationship and stopped getting drunk. But a few years on, his Christian growth seemed to have plateaued. He looks respectable enough, but those close to him know his temper. Carla was also a respectable Christian. She doesn't swear, steal, or get drunk, commit adultery, or any of those sins which might um, measure, we might measure someone's godliness. But her Christian service had little joy. Often she's irritable or complaining. John developed an addiction to pornography in his teens. 20 years or so ago, uh, and nothing has changed since. He, he thought marriage would sort it out, but it didn't. He's tried many times to stop. He's put in place regimes of spiritual discipline, all to no avail. If shopping were an Olympic sport, Emma would be a medal contender. She's not had an easy life, and shopping is the thing she looks to to cheer her up. New clothes, something for the home, luxury goods, these are the bright spots in her life. It means money is tight, and she has little to give away to others, but they're the compensations for the troubles in her life. Is there hope for these people? That's from the opening page of, of a book I've been reading called You Can Change by Tim Chester. So before you kind of, if you felt like that was a personal attack to you, um, I, I apologize. I changed some of the names, but not all of them. Um, it's a great resource, dripping with, with practical wisdom without being moralistic or unrealistic. Um, but it's a good question. What, what, what's the hope for them? These sins, they kind of seem to keep going. I want to focus particularly on the next day for them, when, when Connor feels his anger rising and wants to lash out at his friend, when Carla gets a call to do yet another thing and can't hold her tongue from venting, when John finds himself alone with his thoughts, stuck in his thoughts late at night again, when Emma is browsing online and feels that irresistible urge towards buy now. Well, what should they do in, in that moment? Many of us don't often pray that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, especially with things that become familiar like that. Once we get past the obvious sins that would make us stand out, we grow used to how things are. The sin in our lives can seem inevitable. It's really easy to be convinced um, either that, that we don't really think we're capable of, of real evil. You know, the things I face are nothing compared to this, or it's not a big deal, just, just a small bending of my conscience for such a great gain. Or, or on the other hand, we don't really think that deliverance from evil is possible. You know, I'm, I'm just too far gone. This, this, this is just who I am now. Or that, that there's really no other way, but better to ask forgiveness. Or perhaps we don't really actually want to be delivered. The sin actually feels better than the rejection of it. Or it doesn't matter, no one will find out. And so we don't pray to God for deliverance. And so what I want to show you today is that this is the kind of prayer that is worth praying every day. If you've just joined us this, this week, uh, we've been working through a mini-series on a section of the Lord's Prayer, just looking at one petition per week. And tonight we're looking at that, that question, uh, that petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think that's the kind of prayer that's worth praying honestly and earnestly. I think that's worth praying for three reasons. Um, you'll see them on your outline. First, you are more vulnerable to temptation than, than you realize. Second, that God really is able to deliver you. 
And third, that it's better, it really is better to be delivered from evil. But before we can talk about the reasons to pray this prayer, we need to understand exactly what it is it that we're praying. What kind of evil we're we talking about um, here? Some of your translations might have read, uh, deliver us from the evil one. Is that a different thing? Is that the same? Or does that make a difference? So let's have a look at the prayer itself. There's been lots of discussions over the year, years, and people have taken different stances. Um, back in the fourth century, there was a guy called Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, when Christianity was going in a transition period from going being an underground, oppressed religion to being the official state religion of the Roman Empire. But as it, as it made that transition, he saw a danger of corruption and mixed motivations slipping into to the faith. And so he advocated for Christians to escape from, from that, the evil of that world. This was a key driver for the, the monastic movement for, of monks and monasteries. For Gregory of Nyssa, deliverance from evil was a prayer that we would not surround ourselves with evil, that we would escape it, escape from the evils in our culture. Another theologian at the time, um, St. Augustine, was, um, he, he disagreed with Gregory of Nyssa. He wanted Christians to be engaged with the world. When he prayed for deliverance from evil, he was thinking not of the, the evil surrounding us, but the evil that you face in a moment of temptation. Not that God would stop us from ever facing temptation, but that in that moment of temptation, he would deliver us through it. Others pray still differently. I, was, I heard someone recently say that um, they prayed that God would deliver them from the evil of dis discouragement as a burnt-out teacher. And so the, it's worth asking that question. What, what is it exactly that Jesus is putting in front of us as, as a priority for us to pray? When his disciples ask him, how, how should we pray? And he teaches them this What's he, what's he doing? Are we praying that God would deliver us from being surrounded by evil, in, in the presence of evil? Or are we praying that God would deliver us from evil happening to us, like hardship, pain, or death? Or to be delivered from the evil that we do? Deliverance out of the temptations that we face. And I would suggest that the last one, because these are two parts of the one petition, lead us not into temptation, but instead deliver us from evil. Being delivered from evil is the opposite of being led into temptation to sin. And so, we, we, you know, we might pray that we would not be surrounded by evil or that evil would not happen to us. But in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' emphasis is our need for spiritual deliverance. So whether we're praying against evil or the evil one, that the message here is the same. It's a request that sin never gain a foothold in our lives. It's a prayer not so much that we escape the evil out there, but in here. Not so much that evil not be done to us, but that we not do evil ourselves. And that's a really important turning of, of posture, because when it comes to sin, it's so easy to look out there. If I burst out in anger at my friend, I can think of five different ways to react. I, I could point to, the con to, to my context. He just made me so mad. It was so unfair. You'd have done the same thing if you were in my situation. I could point to my upbringing. I take after my father. He, he used to get angry. I learned my anger from him. I can point to my personal history. You'd be an angry too, person too if you'd been through what I've been through. I can point to my, my temperament. It's just the way I am. I'm hot-headed. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, finally, I could start with a portion of that evil that is my own and pray, please, God, deliver me from evil, from the evil in myself. That, that's a very different stance to take, isn't it? 
And each of those things might be true. And actually, it's really helpful to understand those things, the things that, that we might be victim of. But Jesus wants us to see the evil in here. So that's the focus of this prayer, that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Particularly the evil that we face uh, in, in decisions, in, in ourselves, in our hearts. And so let me give you three right reasons why this is a really important prayer for us to pray, why Jesus would put it up there in, in priorities, why he would teach us. First, we should pray this prayer because we are more vulnerable to sin than we often realize. We are all capable of evil and every one of us needs to, to battle against sin in our hearts daily. That's where this prayer orients us, to go into battle against sin. Galatians 5 describes the life of a believer like this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. We have divided hearts, filled with good desires from the Spirit, but also with evil. Now, our society tells us, listen to your heart. But the Bible says, no, your heart is divided. The better question is to work out what of those desires are good and what ones are evil. There is a conflict within you. So rather than listen to your heart or, or do what you want to do, the Bible says, walk in step with the Spirit. Listen to how, how it sends us forward from, from that reflection. A bit further down in Galatians 5, verse 24 onwards. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus has cru have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And much better than listen to your heart or do what you want to do, keep in step with the Spirit. Every day, putting to death the desires of the flesh. In the words of 2 Peter 11, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. And instead, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with, with Him. And so none of us should pretend that when it comes to sin that we don't have to fight. None of us should pretend like we have it all together. Instead, we should go into battle daily. Apparently, the great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon was having dinner with his um, students one, one night and one of them came out with that. He said, I, I think I've beaten sin. I think I've been given kind of an extra, extra blessing by God and I, I can do it. I, I don't know what I need to worry about it anymore. Um, he said nothing at the time, but the next morning, as everyone was kind of sleepily coming out from breakfast, he poured an entire jug of milk on this guy's head. And apparently in that moment, it, his theory was proven false. <laughs> um, and the Bible backs that up as well. You've heard this verse a couple of times the past weeks, um, but 1, John 8, 1 verse 8 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will deliver us from all unrighteousness. See, it's not only arrogant, but actually dangerous to pretend that we, that we can defeat sin on our own. Because we'll fail to see that our need for God's grace and to fail to confess our sins to Him. And so we, that's the first thing. We need to pray for deliverance from evil because we are more vulnerable than we realize. You need to go into battle each day with the, with the evil in your own heart. And the only way to win is by the power of the Spirit. It, it's, it's the Spirit who gives us good desires. It's God's work in us. And so prayer should be our key tool. Which leads us to the third point. Um, on the one hand, we pray because 
because of our desperate need, because we're vulnerable. But on the flip side, we should pray because we trust that God really actually is able to deliver us from evil. Uh, we're on the second point on your outline tonight. We should pray because God really is able to deliver us. And when it comes to the defeat of evil, Roman, uh, Revelation 12 explains a lot, that, the one that was read just before. Let me read again from verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Uh, the accuser there is, is, is Satan, is, is the evil one. So that's a great start, isn't it? Uh, evil is defeated, thrown down, humiliated. And when did this happen? How? Well, keep reading. Uh, how did they triumph over him? They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So when did this happen? It was on the cross when the Lamb of God was slain that Jesus triumphed over evil. That we triumphed over evil with him. So why does the world still look like it does? Well, keep reading. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you, and you who dwell in them. It's great news. But, but woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Woe to the earth and sea. Wait a second, that's where we live. That's not good news at all. <laughs> um, woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to him. He's f- filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. That, 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 that's a picture of our current age. In the book of Revelation, we're entering into picture language where often the impressions are more important than the precise details. And so what's the picture here? Well, it's the, the death of Jesus was the triumphant and, and uh, full defeat of de- the devil and of evil. The devil was cast down. But the twist is that evil continues in our world, doesn't it? And so actually it's a comfort to know because it makes sense of where we live. We, we can, it, can, it can feel sometimes like, like Satan is going about in a fury, like evil is winning. But we see here a a desperate and hopeless picture, trying to stir up as much trouble as he can, knowing that his time is short. That makes sense of the evil in our world, as well as acknowledging acknowledging the sometimes terrible presence of evil. It's a picture filled with hope, because there's no chance for evil to win. Jesus wins, because Jesus has already won. And sure enough, just a few pages, pages later, if you keep reading the book of Revelation, we read about the, the future judgment of Satan where he's thrown down, not to the earth, but to the lake of fire and sulfur, defeated forever. And so the message is clear that the war has been won, decisively and finally already, even though the battle rages on. And this happens in our history too. Um, you, I'm sure you've heard stories of, of the, the war finishing and battles continuing, one of the strange ones I've heard, uh, five days after the death of Adolf Hitler, Germany was defeated. And the, it had this, a strange effect on some of the battle fronts. Five days after his death, there was the battle for Castle Itter, where escaped prisoners of war were being defended by the French and American troops. And with the Germans now having lost the war, the battle continued, but it felt like the rules changed. People responded differently. Some of the German soldiers, realizing their hopeless position, and having been disillusioned by the Nazi regime, they actually switched sides. They, they, they started defending the prisoners of war against their own nation. Uh, but for others, the, the determination only grew. And the battle continued fiercely until reinforcements arrived and the Nazi troops were defeated de- decisively. That's a bit like our moment right now. 
where the battle continues against evil, sometimes fiercely, but the result is set. The war has already been won. No matter how this goes, Jesus wins over evil. And so what does that mean for us? Well, if it's Jesus who's triumphant over evil, and if it's the Spirit who bears fruit in our lives, and if it's the Father who can deliver us, then prayer must be our key weapon in the battle. We have to see that God is the one who has power over evil, not our willpower or our discipline or our accountability. First and foremost, prayer must be our key weapon in the battle. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Either prayer will consume the sin or sin will choke out the prayer. I've caught myself complaining in the past of not having enough time to pray. Maybe you've done the same thing. But, I mean, we know we all have the same 24 hours in the day. People who pray more don't have more hours. My problem is that I decide that other things are more important. But when we realize that God is is the great change agent in our lives, prayer will inevitably move up the priority list. If that's true, then that, that prayer is our key weapon in the battle, then we should pray. We should pray proactively, knowing um, that He's the one that can lead us out of temptation, deliver us from evil. So we should pray that He would. Uh, we should pray reactively as well. When anger rises in your heart, when you feel despondent, when, you, when you're confronted with sexy images, you should pray then as well. You know, a child will happily play in her own little world, but as soon as she senses danger, what does she do? She looks around for a parent. This is how we should be as children of God. As soon as we sense danger, we should, we should look up to our Heavenly Father. To pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, far from there. Deliver me from the evil that I face. And so we pray. We pray because of our desperate need. You're more vulnerable than you realize. And we pray because God is our hope. He's the one who can deliver you from evil. And at one level, one level that should be enough. You need help and God can give it, and so pray. It should be enough, but actually often it's not. So we need to acknowledge that it really is worth it to be delivered from sin and evil. I know that sounds kind of stupid to say out loud. Of course that's a bad thing, right? But it's one of those things that we, we might know is stupid, but we continue to believe in our hearts. When we ask, why don't we change, we, we might point to context or upbringing or the lack of discipline or support or whatever else, but often the reality, deep down, why don't we change? Well, it's because on, on one level or another, we actually don't want to change. We keep sinning because we want to keep sinning. To be let out of temptation requires change, and that's, change is never easy, especially when it comes to who we are or giving up what we think we kind of want. Consider how hard even, even just a simple prayer like this is. To say, Lord, I feel irritable this morning. Help me to be kind. I mean, it sounds so simple. And, and we can all think, yep, that sounds like a good prayer. I, I would see myself praying that prayer. Lord, I feel irritable this morning. Help me to be kind. But it's actually a very hard prayer to pray. Let me tell you why. Because in order to pray this prayer, I have to stop being irritable long enough to admit my grumpiness to myself. <laughs> It's so difficult to see my attitude because the problem isn't with me, it's with all those other idiots. Lord, I feel irritable this morning, help me to be kind. That's a hard prayer to pray because it's so much easier just to be grumpy. But on top of that, in our world, emotional states are sacred, aren't they? 
If I'm grumpy, I, I have every right to be, probably. Everyone around me needs to get over it. One of the worst sins, according to pop psychology, is to suppress your emotions. So to pray that I won't feel what I feel, it's as if I'm suppressing the real me. Lord, I feel irritable this morning. Help me to be kind. That, that's a hard prayer to pray because it's much easier to be grumpy and because all the voices around us tell us to give in to our feelings. So it's much easier just to excuse or, or to minimize or to ignore and to carry on in sin. And whatever the sin is, it can often feel like that. Sometimes growing, giving up sin can feel like it would be boring or unsatisfying or just plain hard work. It takes a great amount of humility and energy and willpower to honestly and earnestly pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. But that's what Jesus wants us to pray. Why? Well, because we're vulnerable to sin, because God can actually deliver us, but also because that's actually what's best for you. God actually wants what's best for you. God actually loves you. God doesn't give you a list of rules to test your obedience. God tells you the best way to live and then he helps you to live it out. You know that, that famous line, um, and we know that in all things God, God works for the good of those who love him, from Romans 8. Well, that's actually true. God loves you and God wants the best for you. What a comfort to know that the God of the universe who is completely in control of everything actually cares for you and wants the best for you. The place, the place where people go wrong is that often we have no idea what God's best for us is. What we imagine as our good can, can often be the exact opposite of what, we tr what is truly good for us. In Romans 8, there's no hint of a, of a promise that hard things won't happen. And yet sometimes that's what we think the good is that God has for us, just an easy life. In fact, the whole point of this chapter uh, is in those very hardest things, we can trust that God has good purposes. It's in our sufferings that, that God often gives the greatest gifts of growth. So let me read the rest of the verse. It, it says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those that God foreknew, He also predestined. What, what for? What, what, to what end? to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the good that God has in store for us? It's that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Christian, the, the, the good that God has in store for you is that you would be more like Jesus. Let that sink in. Take, take a few steps back. Did Jesus live an easy life? No. Did Jesus lose a lot and go through a lot of terrible suffering? Yes. Did Jesus live a good life? Absolutely. That actually the best life that he could. We should long to be like Jesus, even when it means joining with him in his sufferings, because Jesus showed us what life is supposed to be. Not meandering through, hoping to maximize our positive vibes and feelings, but life secure in the love of God. Living for a much greater purpose than myself. Knowing that even the pain that I face now, the evil that is done for me now, is of little consequence in the light of eternity. The much more important thing is to be delivered from the evil in ourselves. And one day we will, when sin is finally and fully defeated, but for now the battle rages on and, and every moment is worth fighting because to be like Jesus is what we were made for. And so to conclude, we're going to do a little experiment. 
What, what if we prayed this prayer at least every week for the rest of the year? I don't mean just reciting the magic words, but to pray earnestly and honestly. Lead me not into temptation, far from there, anywhere but there, the opposite of there. Deliver me from evil and, and lead me into righteousness, into your protection. Uh, here's the experiment. Let's set a New Year's resolution. Uh, what do you want to be? What do you want to be different by the time New Year's comes around? I know that's not actually what a New Year's resolution is, but I'm, I'm, I'm reclaiming it. In fact, let, let's get specific. So why don't, you, why don't you think of an area in your life that you'd like to change? It might be a negative behavior, lying, lust, overeating, overspending, gossip, slander. It might be a negative emotion, envy, anxiety, greed, or anger. It might be a, a Christian virtue, that, um, a fruit of the Spirit you feel is particularly lacking in your life. Hopefully you've got something in your head. I've got three questions about it. Keep it in your head. Um, one, is your resolution about changing your behavior and emotions? You can't choose, you know, better behaved children or, uh, or I don't know, whatever else. It's got to be about, about you. Better than that is, is not shouting at my children or uh, whatever else, because you, you need to remember that you're vulnerable to sin. Second, does it feel realistic? Does it feel like something you could achieve? Well, if it doesn't, then know that defeating sin is God's work. And third, what would it mean for you to be led away from that temptation? If that was taken away, what, what would it be replaced by? What would it look like to become more like Jesus in that area of your life? There you go, there's my question. So why, why not give it a go? Commit to praying at least once a week for the rest of the year that God would deliver you from, would lead you out of that temptation deliver you from that evil knowing that one you're vulnerable to sin and you need God's help second that God can and will help you and and finally that even when it's painful escaping from sin is absolutely worth it because God God wants the best for you and because his best is for you to be more like Jesus and so why don't I kick us off uh in praying that prayer get us started and, and I'd love if that would be become a prayer that it was and a habit and see what God does with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation, anywhere but there, far from there. Deliver us from evil. Lead us into your righteousness, into your protection. Pray that we be, be more like Jesus, knowing that that's your best for us. I pray for the times when that feels hard or not worth it or like we just don't have the energy for it. I pray that you'd give us the energy we need to go into battle each and every day against the evil desires in our own hearts. I pray that you'd produce in us the fruit of the Spirit and help us to, to put to death the desires of the flesh, to lean into the desires of, that are good and away from the ones that are evil. Knowing and trusting that the Spirit produces fruit that is truly good and that that's all your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.